a Podcast One production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Hello and welcome. I'm Adam Shand and this is Episode 4 of The Trials of the Vampire. Last time we began to examine the alleged sexual assault of Penny in August 2002. She accused her male escort, Shane Chartres-Abbott, of the crime. The motive, she claimed, was simple, an argument over the payment for his services. Yet the punishment was extreme. She was tied to the bed, strangled, beaten about the head, slashed with a small blade, raped vaginally and anally. Her hands and buttocks were scalded with a hot liquid and, most shockingly, her tongue was partially amputated with some kind of implement, possibly even a bottle opener from the hotel. Chartres Abbott was a monster who claimed to be a vampire, Penny told police. Yet she remembered nothing of the attack, not even the first blow. The only thing she was certain of was the gigolo was the last person with her in that hotel room. Let's continue building our timeline of the police investigation. Sometime around 5am, Shane left the Hotel Seville. That's what he told his supporters after his arrest. Penny was almost asleep and unharmed. She called after him. You should go home to your wife and dogs. No one saw him leave and there was no CCTV footage. His partner Kathleen called him around 5am on his mobile. He was in a noisy place. There were voices or television in the background, she told police. He would be home soon, he said but he didn't go straight home. It was nearly two hours later when he slipped into bed beside Kathleen. So where was Shane in that missing interval of time? My name is Catherine and I'm 33 years of age. At present, I work as a sex worker at the main course brothel, 58 Dudley Street, West Melbourne, and I've been working there since March 2002. On September 10, police from the sex crime squad interviewed a female escort about a client who pitched up just before closing time. An actor is playing the part of Catherine. At about ten past six, the hostess asked me if I was interested in a bondage booking. I accepted and proceeded to discuss the terms and conditions of the booking with the client. He told me his name was Shane. He was shorter than me, about five foot seven, with fairish hair, tied back in a ponytail, and he was wearing a dark overcoat and dark clothes with lace-up boots. He also had with him a dark-coloured bag containing, amongst other things, his own personal sex toys, including a big black latex dildo, a whip, a gimp mask and handcuffs. He was very forthright in his request for very specific and extreme bondage role-playing. He requested several things. He was to take the submissive role, being tied up, chastised and humiliated for any perceived mistakes. If you harbour doubts about Shane's innocence, what's coming may tend to confirm them, but don't rush to judgement yet. This evidence was never given in court. It was considered too prejudicial and the media never got hold of it. A warning here, you may want to skip forward a minute or two. It's not for the faint-hearted. This client struck me as odd. His age, demeanour and self-confidence are atypical of bondage and discipline clients in general. His ability to verbalise his desires indicated to me a person familiar with the sex industry or personal fetishes because B&D clients are older, wealthier and reluctant to talk openly about their sexual requirements. Shane apparently wanted everything on the menu at the main course 
and some items that weren't. He requested toilet slavery, boot worship. He wanted me to perform anal sex on him using a strap-on dildo. Cock and ball torture, which involves tying the penis and the scrotum together. And most unusual of all was that he wanted me to extinguish lit cigarettes on his person, which I refused to do. He then asked me if I would ash my cigarette on him, which I agreed to do. He asked to be toilet slave, which involves licking the genital and anus clean after going to the toilet. I declined his offer and he then asked if I could perform a golden shower on him, that is, urinate on him, which I agreed to attempt. That suite of degrading services would cost Shane 200 bucks, which he paid half in cash and half on a card. I'm not exactly sure how police tracked Shane to the main course, but I suspect it was through the credit card transaction. It's perhaps a lesson for those considering a dirty detour on the way home, paying cash. The booking went for a full hour and, in fact, went a little bit over time and finished abruptly with him ejaculating. It appeared that he was more than happy with the service he had received as all requests had been met. He then proceeded to dress and pack up his tools slash toys and requested a taxi. He left at about 8am while I was still cleaning up the room. There are three ways of looking at this evidence. If you think he was guilty, then it seems to confirm Penny's allegation that Shane was a monster. I asked George Slim, the prosecutor in Shane's case, to comment. He's apparently just committed this violent act. He goes to somewhere where he's now the submissive one, chastised and humiliated for perceived mistakes he made. Right. Oh, yeah, so made, it's redemption. It's just made a big one, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, redemption. But also that. it gives a plausibility to this bizarre act that he did, if you accept what she says happened. It's bizarre, but that makes it less bizarre. That evidence makes it less bizarre. It fits into a picture. On the other hand, if you believe Shane's version, that little or no sex took place with Penny that night, then it's plausible that Shane might seek fulfilment of his desire on the way home. Sandra Gibson was Shane's counsellor. I mean, maybe that night, like he, nothing transpired with he and Penny. He still was perhaps ungratified in that way, felt ungratified. So I thought, yeah, I know main course is open. We, you know, everyone knows main course will do anything. So um, no, that doesn't surprise me. And I mean, that's kind of how people would engage BDSM. That's in that kind of, yes, the dark hours of the wee morning, you know. Yeah, when everyone else is done for the night, that's when that world gets going. And there was a third possible impact on the minds of a jury. This explosive evidence, coupled with what was alleged to have occurred in room 307, might seem too bizarre to be true. Except that you might find it implausible that he did this because you're not expecting people to behave that way. An innocent jury that's not used to that sort of conduct would think, oh, shit, you know, people don't do that. People don't do that. That's what they might think. Shane's counsel was Ross Privatelli, an experienced criminal defence lawyer. He regarded this evidence as damaging, but Shane was relaxed. A visit to the main course to him was like unwinding with a drink after work. Um, Well, I can remember he's a sex worker, so I guess... uh his approach to things were, were uh, you know, a little different, but uh, he did say that he was, um, I don't know whether these are exactly his words, uh, but uh, he would talk like this. He said, oh, I just went to chill out, right? He was, I mean, it's difficult because, I mean, here we get into the issue of, you know, morals and ethics and, and standards and, and, and community standards, all right. In this series, you're going to hear so many stories and theories that appear to be plausible, 
but in fact they're probably total fiction. By the end of our story, you may ask, does that even matter? It's not about the truth, it's about proof and uh, plausibility. Reasonable doubt is plausibility. You don't have to be true to raise a doubt, it just has to be plausible. How many cases have you been involved with where these scenarios are plausible, but they're not true? Oh, I'd say many. <laughs> many, 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 many. And That's what reasonable gone, doubts about. And people have gone to jail or, or, or not, or, or not gone. I think more often not gone. More often, I'd say, roughly speaking. Mm. But that's what reasonable doubt's about. How do you raise a reasonable doubt? The people, the jury don't know these people from a bar of soap. So they get a story, a hypothesis gets put up and it depends on how things fit, you know? The main course evidence was really just a side salad. The Crown would need physical evidence of the main allegation to prove a criminal intent. At 6.25am on August 20, the police came looking for that evidence at Shane's home in Reservoir. The items suspected of being used in the attack are listed on the search warrant. Two red wine bottles, a knife, a pair of pliers, adhesive tape and the sex toys that Shane carried in his black bag. They also sought Shane's long black overcoat, Penny's handbag and bank cards, her pants and underwear and her mobile phone. The search produced mixed results. They found none of the items involved in the attack, except for the bondage and discipline kit. Shane did not dispute he was at the hotel or that Penny was a client. They also found Shane's coat, and forensic tests showed there was blood on it. Penny's blood. How much blood was on the coat? Splatters. Not a lot. Not a lot. From my recollection, it it was like a a spray. Uh, It wasn't... Uh, situation of the sleeve of the coat being drenched in blood or something like that. It was, my recollection is it was, it was like a spray, a nosebleed type thing, just not, not heavy, but you know, uh, that type of thing. But that wasn't the point. The point was that Shane said he left the room and there was no blood, anyone's blood. And listen, we, we asked him questions about other ways blood could have, you know, whilst they were engaged in what they were engaged in, whether Penny was uh, uh, having a period or whether there were any other forms of, you know, uh, bleeding, you know, things like that. So we, we explored all those issues. Yeah. Shane said, no blood, period, no blood. Yeah. So how could there be blood on, the, on this coat? The police seized and searched Shane's work bag. Inside, they found Penny's Ericsson mobile phone. There are two versions of how this discovery took place. Kathleen Price testified at Shane's trial that she observed a police sergeant empty the bag's contents onto the floor of the bedroom during the raid. An actor is narrating her evidence. They took everything out and put it next to the bag. All of his bondage equipment, the condoms and lube were in the bag. They also took out his books, the exercise book, some scrap paper, pens, pencils, the carbon book, everything. The sergeant contradicted this. He said he searched the bag only when he arrived back at police headquarters during a break in Shane's interview. There were apparently no witnesses to this discovery. It's interesting to note that Shane was not charged with the theft of the phone. In your black work bag, that you call it, there was also another mobile phone located in there. There shouldn't be. No comment. I only have two mobile phones. And that mobile phone we turned on. And if we dial Petty's phone number, that number rings. So we put it to you at this stage that it's her mobile phone. No, it wouldn't be in my bag. Can you give us... Someone put it in my bag, which I don't know who would have, but I did not have a mobile phone, so... Who could have possibly put it in a bag? Well, I guess it could be you guys. If you guys have Penny's phone, you guys are the ones that know all the information and she's accused me, so maybe... I don't know. That's all I know, but there's no way that I put her phone in my bag. 
We were always on shaky ground in terms of throwing up uh, a strong alternative scenario to a jury or to a judge. So our best line of attack was simply defence, right? To attack the, the circumstantial evidence as it was thrown to us, the phone, the blood on the coat, you know, motive, all those things. The Crown had to explain why Shane switched from satisfying a customer to savagely assaulting her. Penny provided clues from the three earlier bookings. In the first and second, the sex was what she called normal, but on the third, it was different. The first thing he did was tie me up to the bed. He tied my arms and legs to four different directions on the bed. He used white cotton cloth and tied them to the legs of the bed. He then started having sex with me by putting his penis in my vagina. He was also trying to put his fingers in my bottom and I told him no, that it would hurt me and not to touch it. He then put a pillow in my face. He was doing it softly, but he held it there for one or two minutes. And I was starting to get scared and told him to stop it. He said okay and took it off. He then said to me, it's good, isn't it? You don't know what's going to happen to you. I told him I thought it was weird and that I didn't know him and I didn't like doing things like that with people I didn't know. He then said, okay, I'm not a bad man. That visit, Shane told me that he was old. I said to him, what are you talking about? You are only 27. He then went on to tell me that he was a vampire and used to drink blood to live. He said he was living before the city had been built, meaning Melbourne. He said that he was now living in the real world and that he ate real food now. He said that his girlfriend knows that he is a vampire. This revelation apparently didn't put Penny off. A friendship was growing. In the first booking, Shane had revealed his real name, and after the third, he began to ring his client for social chats. He said he was ringing up to say hello. He said that he was going to buy a car and spoke about problems with his girlfriend. I think the problems with his girlfriend was to do with them having no money. Penny said Shane wanted a friend, but also a regular client. He said that he wanted to see me again, but I would have to give him money because he didn't think his girlfriend would be very happy. I told him if I didn't have to pay, I would be happy to see him again. I suggested that we could share hotel expenses. I said to him that I wouldn't ask for it, as I understood that he did this for a living, and it was only if he was happy to see me. He said to me not to give up on him, as he might call me in a month. Shane told his counsel that he did want to see Penny again, but flatly denied Penny's version of the bookings. There was rough sex and bondage from the first night and anal sex too, all with Penny's consent, he said. He put a pillowcase over her head, tied her hands behind her back and had sex with her from the rear. Far from being scared and refusing this, she had kissed him passionately afterwards, according to Shane. The later encounters progressed in the same vein and the intimacy between them deepened. And they enjoyed one another's company. They were into the same thing. There was some sort of honest exchange they had. So, yeah, I'd say definitely they had, you know, developed something that was special to them. Penny was a rarity in Shane's clientele, a woman who might be prepared to engage his bondage and discipline skills. Most of his clients were men wanting conventional gay sex, and Shane wasn't gay. Sandra Gibson again. That's a hard thing if you're not gay. Yeah, And, and even if you are gay, that narrower focus on, on the work that you would have and the particular cohort that you'd be attracting 
potentially can fuck you over, that kind of stuff. The Crown case was that Shane became frustrated with Penny's reluctance to pay him. Perhaps he felt disrespected, that he was being used, and this frustration in Shane boiled over into violence, or so the Crown's theory went. But the case had limitations. The case is based on circumstantial evidence. I mean, poor victim herself couldn't identify Shane as her assailant. Couldn't remember anything? No, no. no. So she's out of the picture completely. Well, she totally believed that it was Shane. She is convinced that that it was Shane. Based solely on the fact that he was the last person she can remember in the room. That's all. Shane was on remand for more than two months. It was only in jail that he began talking about snuff movies. Until then, he hadn't told anyone about Penny's warning on the night of the attack that someone was coming to kill him. Her confession that he was to star in a snuff movie. Shane thought that he was being set up and that Penny was perhaps being set up and both of them were going to be participating in a snuff movie. It was something that we took on the basis of his instructions, but we had no evidence of any cameras being planted in the in the room or any audio equipment being planted in the room. Um, it was something that Shane believed could have occurred. When did he first say that to you? It was fairly early on. I think it would have been after he was uh, on bail in my office here. Uh, and I must say, I felt that there wasn't much strength in that claim. Uh, we certainly... We couldn't prove it on the material that we had. So it would have been uh, a question of uh, cross-examining Penny. As the police gathered evidence, another scenario that's relevant to our story was beginning. Penny was recovering in hospital after surgery. A week after the incident, she called her former boyfriend, Mark Perry. She didn't tell investigators this until seven years later. An actor is playing Penny's part. I rang Mark on his mobile. I told him that I was in hospital and he asked me why I was in hospital. I told him that he didn't need to know why and that I was just in hospital. He asked me what had happened to me but I didn't tell him on the phone. I told him that I didn't want him to come but an hour later he turned up at my room. I could see that when he saw me he was really sad. He asked me who do this to you and I said I didn't know. I said this because I was still affected by all the drugs that the doctors had given to me. At that stage, I couldn't remember too much. He said, do I know him? And I said, I didn't know him. He was not there long, but he sat there and looked at me before he left. Mark Perry was there again when Penny was released from hospital. Associates said he felt responsible for her. He was taking what happened to her to heart. Melbourne car dealer Max Walker was distributing party drugs in the city's gay club scene for Perry at the time. He's declined my invitation for an interview. An actor is narrating a statement he gave police. There was no doubt to me that Mark looked upon Penny as being a special girl to him, even though he had other Asian girls hanging around him on the side. Mark specifically told me that he wanted to kill Chartres Abbott. I saw Mark angry and he definitely was upset, and it pretty much reduced him to tears. He was very emotional about it. He was adamant that he was going to get the guy who did it, whether he was in jail or not. I make no allegation against Mark Perry based on this statement. It's natural for someone in Perry's place to want revenge, but having those feelings and acting upon them are two very different things. There is a lot more evidence to come. However, I will say that jail was the safest place for Shane at that time. One afternoon in October, while Shane was still in custody, his agency Cloud9 received two curious phone calls. The first was from a female. 
the receptionist, Robin Woodlock, thought it was Penny on the line. She took the initial booking from Penny in July and recognised the voice. The call came through on a line designated for regular clients. The caller wanted a male escort, but she sounded like she was under duress, Woodlock told police. The caller said she had to go and would call back, but she never did. Minutes later, an Asian-sounding man rang to book an escort. He wanted a male to wait outside the Maya department store in town. They would go on to meet some of his friends in Chinatown. The address the caller gave in North Melbourne turned out to be fictitious. Woodlock rejected the booking, suspecting the calls were connected. After Shane was released on bail in late November, he visited Cloud9 and spoke to Woodlock. No doubt the calls came up, as Woodlock made a report to police about them. Shane told her Asians had been involved in the attack on Penny and St Kilda police had something to do with it. The St Kilda beat included Melbourne's most notorious red light district and over decades, a number of officers had been accused of involvement in prostitution, extortion, drug running and even murder. Shane told Woodlock that St Kilda police were corrupt. They were into everything, including setting him up for a snuff movie. We'll delve into that after this message. Welcome back. Shane alleged an Asian organised crime ring had set him up and the police were in on it. They'd planted evidence in his house, Penny's phone and the overcoat with her blood on it. However, the coat, which was in a large size, wasn't his, he claimed. Ross Privatelli again. Shane and I uh, met at, um, at Northland Shopping Centre and went to the store where he recalled buying the coat some time earlier. They still had that style of coat. I grabbed it and I said, Shane, try this, try this on. And he did. And uh, he wasn't a big guy at all. His uh, hands didn't come out of the, the sleeves and it went almost to his ankles. <laughs> all right. Now, I'm not saying that was a very necessarily a scientific way of comparing what I saw in that brown paper bag and what I saw in the store. Shane, I had to rely on Shane to tell me that this was the same style of coat. But clearly, that size coat looked ridiculous on him, right? The shoulders were disproportionate to his, the arms, the sleeves were too long, and the bottom of the coat. Now, the bloodstains were the victims, but the coat <laughs> was not. Privatelli had doubts about the medical evidence too, especially the injuries to Penny's tongue. It was a lurid and sensational piece of evidence, the partial amputation of a tongue. That was perhaps somewhat um, exaggerated. I mean, she suffered a vicious injury, there's no doubt about it. But I'm not sure, I mean, I read the material, the material talks about the tongue being pulled out in some respects, the tongue being pulled out. It's not that easy to do though. No, but the tongue wasn't pulled out. And, 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 and the impression I, I'm left with is that it wasn't as, as severe as what was stated at the very beginning. Which colours the whole case? Well, of course it does, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, my recollection of it, she, she, she made a full recovery physically. Me mentally, this, this woman would, would have been... I, I don't know what type of assistance she received, um, you know, but it was, it was a horrific uh, event for her. Just maybe not as horrific as... as the media portrayed. Well, listen, it was, it was blood and a vampire. <laughs> so, um, now, if it was just a vampire and there was no blood, there is no story. <laughs> it has to be blood. I have to agree. <laughs> and there has, to, there has to be a lot of blood, right? 
The scientific evidence raised more questions than it answered. There was DNA from a third unknown person found on the wound to Penny's hip. And Shane's profile was excluded from DNA on a used condom which was located in the bathroom. This was good for the defence, but Penny's DNA wasn't present on the condom either. The forensics yielded numerous scenarios, most of them contradictory. And then another expert raised concerns the specimens could have been cross-contaminated as they were all tested at one time, making them worthless. Shane's friend, Sonny Naidu. Was he going through the same process of like, well, I didn't do this, so how did this happen? Yeah, absolutely. He was as flabbergasted as one could be, especially being so close to the situation as the you know, the last person to see her, apparently the last person to see her. Obviously, he's not the last person to see her, there was somebody else. But lots of things were going through, his mind was racing. In the months leading up to the trial, Shane felt increasingly tense and isolated. The lurid press coverage made him feel like a target. He told Kathleen that he feared for his life, but she dismissed that as paranoia. Shane told me that Penny and her friends were going to kill him, but I don't know why or how. I don't know when she threatened him, and I thought he was just being stupid. I told him that if they were going to do anything, they would have done it by now. Shane was seeing a psychiatrist once a month, but he needed more than medical care. He desperately wanted someone to believe his story, to believe in his innocence. Sandra Gibson, a counsellor at the Prostitutes Collective in St Kilda, was that person. You know how you try to conjure what that kind of person might look like? Well, you know, I was going through that sort of process, but and it was hard to kind of really imagine someone that could do that. But I certainly didn't imagine what I saw. And it was just someone like fresh-faced, open-faced, and, you know, he was self-deprecating. Like, all the good qualities that would make you ask, like, just what the hell are you doing here and what am I doing here? Why are we here together now? Shane looked quite different to the man who was arrested back in August. Gone was the pale, long-haired goth look which had been his trademark as Simon, the vampire gigolo. He had his hair shaved. He had a very different look. He had a... I mean, it was shaved in prison, so it was sort of grown out, but he just looked really, you know, clean-cut and... Just a nice, innocent-looking boy. Yeah. Once sort of I got over, like, just the innocence that stood before me, I, I did say to him very clearly first up, Shane, if I think for one minute there's any truth in the matter that you've been involved in this or capable of it, I cannot work with you. And he just looked me straight in the eyes and just said, I didn't. I did not do it. Please let me tell my story. Let me hear my side. So, yeah, he, he presented his case. And, I mean, there was just not one moment where I didn't think he wasn't telling the truth. Sandra saw Shane every weekday for six months before his trial and there were phone calls outside of their sessions. The thing about Shane, he'd get very animated and excited. So he, when he was, un, you know, unravelling or the story was unravelling and we'd be you know, sharing that and having that sort of engagement. He'd go home and then he'd ring me not too long after because something else would have come up that he remembered. So he'd ring me again. And I did. I got to really trust him and enjoy and like him. The more they talked, the more unlikely Penny's allegations seemed to Sandra. That's just bizarre. Like, it just doesn't... It doesn't work in any sense of the industry. 
or even in terms of basic human engagement, unless you are, you know, very unwell, mentally very unwell, mm. and you're bringing lots of complex and nasty past to your situation. I mean, yeah, Shane had a you know, complex past, but he wasn't really scarred by it, you know, and, and he didn't have a kind of, he didn't have enmity or bitterness associated with him at all. It was more like it was an interesting past. Did he speculate about any, any other possible avenues how this could have happened? Yes. I mean, his first thing to me, and it wasn't real anger, it was like a desperation for explanation. You know, it was like, Sandra, that, that kind of crime, that's Asian payback. That's standard Asian payback. And he said, she owed them 30 grand. And she hadn't paid, oh no, that was more than that, but because she was in her 30s, I think, and um, she had came over, came over here when she was really young and hadn't paid her debt back, so she owed them lots of money. We can't discuss Penny's background for legal reasons, but take it from me, this part of Shane's story is doubtful. Sandra Gibson also got Shane's side of the vampire story. Was that something you discussed with him? Oh, yeah, and, and in a very humorous way, too. Like, you know, it was very lighthearted, like he said. And that was part of the thing they shared. He said, first, when he disclosed this, it was in the context of his and Penny's relationship. And he said, one of the things we've got in common is we, we read Helen Rice books. And we love Rice them books. and we, yeah, and yeah. we, you know, kind of share the content of the book and, and you know, incorporate some of that into our, the mystery of our relationship. Anne Rice wrote a series of books on the undead. The best-known work was Interview with the Vampire, which was made into a film starring Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt and Christian Slater. Shane had a copy of the book and rented the film several times from his local video store. Hence that kind of um, physical manifestation of the goth look. Mm. You know, like he had... He, not that I saw him with the goth look, but he showed me photos that were taken at the police station where he had the coat and the long hair and... And that was, that was the persona that he kind of took upon himself to, I don't know, just as part of his BDSM. Right. Than, so know. the vampire thing, we became hit the press and the rest of it, yeah, the vampires. Yeah, if I hadn't have seen the, um, the pictures, I couldn't have really conjured him as a vampire. I mean, he, he had to fresh a face. And not in, at any time did I sense a darkness or a... A, you know, like a, a, a deep anger or anything that he was, mm. you know, suppressing. Or a need for blood. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sonny Naidu also discussed the vampire story with Shane. It's like an actor. <laughs> like a, an actor goes into a role, um, they go into a certain state and they will act out the role and once it's over, it's over, you walk out and then that's it. So, you know, he talked to me about fetishes and things like that and that's all just about providing what people want. This play acting didn't include tearing a woman's tongue out and if they would do that to Penny... What would they do to him? How did he feel about the upcoming trial? He was very, very anxious about it. Not just anxious, he was scared. And there were, you know, a few times that he did sort of refer to his own fear about his life. You know, like, I fear, I fear for my life, Sandra, he'd say. You know, like, I just, it's making me feel really, and I know, I know because of the layers, the level of corruption that he described that, you know, that he, the fear was very real. 
And who, who was he afraid of? What he, he said is that there were people in very high places, like people that had much more power that, than anyone could ever imagine. Like there were, you know, not just the police. I said, well, yeah, there's the police. And he'd say, no, no, Senator, it's much bigger than the police. He said, there's the police, you're talking um, magistrate, judges and politicians. Did he been with? No, that, that, but that was the level of, or the um, vastness or gravitas of this situation. And network of corruption yeah. that was... Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, this the is, these are the people that are involved in this. And, I mean, he was, you know, like, connecting this with, or correlating it with the um, Thai sex work ring at the casino and, you know, like the high rollers that were brought in there and the people that support that and, you know, keep it going, keep it floating. And they are, like the people who go into that weird, dark, and I, I say weird in a very generalised way, because yeah. I would, you know, it's BDSM, when you get to snuff, I'm talking weird. That's beyond All weird. weird, yeah. Okay, That's so off the that, scale of weird. Yeah, well this, I don't think Shane ever even conjured that as being in that world. In the midst of all this, just before the trial, Shane's partner Kathleen discovered she was pregnant. Did that impact on Shane at all? Or? Yeah, 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 it, it did. From his point of view, it gave him a sense of, you know, to, uh, purpose. Um, I don't know whether it was planned. I never asked that question. I don't know whether it, was, it just happened. Um, but they were a committed couple. Hugh, obviously she was aware of the work he did, this, that and the other, and you put that all aside, <laughs> right? They were still a loving couple. and So he was thinking of a life beyond all this? Oh, yeah. He thought he was going to succeed in his defence. He didn't think he was going to be found guilty. Do you think he would have gone back to the business had this worked no, out? No, no. He was done? Uh, I mean, you know, if he had to survive this whole thing, they, I think they probably would have gone to state or to, to the country and they would just got out, got out of time. They would have had to got yeah. out of Melbourne. The trial began in late May 2003. Shane's barrister, Alan Hands, played the cards his client dealt him as aggressively as he could. On the second day of the hearing, the victim gave evidence. Penny still had no memory of the attack at all, but stuck to her story in her statement. She flatly rejected Shane's story about snuff movies and shadowy Asian crime gangs. Because he'd seen Penny on the stand. Yes, yeah. What yes. was his reaction? His first reaction, she can't even look at me. You know, and he said, you know, like, there were plenty of occasions, like, she would look over and then look, uh, you know, just look evasively past him. And she said, he, we looked one another in the eye. That was our, that was the trust we had in one another. And he said, not once could she look me in the eye when she was on that stand. Oh, I think she, he understood that she was under a lot of pressure. Yeah, he absolutely thought she wasn't telling the truth. And, but he, I think, like he said, no, she can't. She's under too much pressure. She can't tell the truth. Penny gave her evidence over two days and then stayed away from the court. Her Thai friend Chusak backed up her story, but he was unconvincing even to the prosecutor. There was something uncomfortable about how, when he was asked questions, as if he, was, uh, he knew things that he didn't want to reveal but not necessarily directly relevant to the case. He didn't look, you know, he seemed to be hiding something. But when you were caught... I still remember that feeling, that impression that there was just something that wasn't convinced by. On day three, there was a hitch, a remarkable coincidence. It was revealed the judge's nephew was now the victim's boyfriend. He'd met Penny while she was stripping years earlier. 
Months after the attack, they'd begun a relationship and were living together when the trial began. The judge had to recuse himself from the case. With Judge White now in charge, the trial resumed. The original judge's connection to Penny added another layer of intrigue and anxiety in Shane's mind. He was becoming very anxious, very anxious. And he had a kind of a word that he, I just recall it to this day because he used it with such kind of stark clarity the night before he was murdered. And he'd say, Sandra, I'm just, I'm peaking, I'm peaking. You know, I can really feel myself peaking. And, you know, when he said it when I was with him, I could see him. You know, I could see exactly what he meant. So he became really anxious and fidgety. Because he was so animated, like he, you know, he found it hard just to sit still in one position for prolonged periods. And when his anxiety elevated, that became very exaggerated. During the trial, he met with his friend, Sonny Naidu. Um, well, I remember the last time I saw him was at a pub in North Melbourne. He was extremely on edge. He was very nervous. He was very anxious and kind of a little bit paranoid. What did he say to you about it? He said he was positive, that he was being watched and, and people were following him. And he specifically said two people. It wasn't just a vague thing. He was seeing the same people on multiple occasions. Yeah, well, that's what he said. So I went through reassurance mode and tried to make him feel better about things so he wasn't as nervous, wasn't as worried, and um, I said, you know, things will be okay. You, you know you didn't do it. Um, it'll be over soon and you'll get your name cleared. When you heard that he had been killed, did that come back to you? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I felt sick. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty horrific when it happened because that's when sort of everything... All of those moments and memories, like a little, like a collage of, of memories, just sort of hit you in one go. Despite his growing fear that he was being stalked, Shane had decided that he would give evidence. He wasn't compelled to, and it's a risky move for a defendant in normal circumstances. But Shane could not be dissuaded. He said vehemently, no, not just no. This is not open to questions. This is my decision. I'm getting on the stand, and I am telling my story because this. This is not true, what's gone down so far, this is not right. And I want people to hear what really happened. And I mean, it was the afternoon that the police were coming on to disclose their evidence. You know, he just sort of said, no, he said, I'm gonna write a book, Sandra. He said, no, no, I'll get, because things are gonna unfold. Like it would be a bestseller, because no one would ever be able to imagine you know, all the, bit, the little pieces in the jigsaw that this story has to it. Look, everything was going to be difficult. The phone, I did, on, on Shane's instructions, the phone was planted. That was going to be a difficult thing to run, right? The coat, even more difficult. What was he going to say? What were we going to say? That the police had, had, had switched coats. That was going to be incredibly difficult. I will say that Shane was going to give evidence, and that would have been good best defence we had. The fact that he was going to get up there and they would have seen this baby-faced, uh, good-looking guy who he did not look or appear or talk like he would be capable of doing something like this. Given that uh, there was no evidence that he was a, that he uh, took drugs, except he didn't even smoke. Okay, he drank red wine. Um, I think he would have been very good in the witness box. 
Late on June 3, the fifth day of the trial, Shane could feel the pace of events quickening. He was elated by the prospect of giving evidence, and he could barely sit still as he waited for his barrister to pick at the seams of the police testimony. At the same time, he felt vulnerable. His home address would be given in open court. He asked his barrister to request it be suppressed, but he couldn't point to any specific threat. It would have been foolish not to have told us something about it, because we could have done something, perhaps. You understand that I, that troubled me, troubled me a lot soon after what had happened to him. You know, could we have done something more? And, you know, uh, but, you know, there, there, there were no alarm bells. What could you have done? Yeah, happens all the time. In court, any type, even in civil proceedings, if a client feels threatened, you call security and you do things like that. But we, we had no reason to do that. You know, when we come, came back from lunch and went to court, like things like the whole, you know, um, gauge went up completely. Police were coming in and there was stuff being presented and it was just like, well, even to the, you know, ignorant onlooker, like it just, that doesn't add up. It was, it was really blatant. And we walked out of the court, Shane was behind me, and there was one of the policemen there that he had noted to me that didn't like him. And as we were walking out, Shane said to me, he said, Sandra, for once, all the jigsaw pieces are starting to fall into place. It's the first time today. And he said, when I get up in the stand, I'll bring them all together. And then we proceeded to out to the front. We're standing at the front of the court. And he was like really kind of, you know, very hyped. Peaking, as he would say. Yeah, peaking, absolutely peaking. And there were three police that were standing just across on the footpath at the court, and Shane and I were at the front of the door on the sort of elevated step. And he said, Sandra, that's, he said, I'm really peaking. And I said, well, what's, he said, I fear for my life. And he said, over there, like, look over there, there's three cops just eyeballing me, staring me down. And I looked over and I, I saw it. And I just said, look, OK, that's all right, because things didn't go well for them today, but no-one's ever been killed in the middle of a trial. And that was it. That were the last words I spoke, really. Yeah. And never to be seen again. In the next episode of The Trials of the Vampire, we count down to a murder. It was a jolt. You don't, you know, it doesn't often happen, but, you know, it reminds you of how serious the business is. You know, you talk about being inured, and you do get a bit inured, but I've often reminded myself, and I've reminded people I'm working with, you know, this is a serious bloody business we're in. We're not making sausages, you know. I remember the dogs were barking. They were running around the house and getting up in our bedroom window and barking. Looking out our bedroom window, you can see into the street. Shane had a look out the window because we thought my dad had arrived because we were expecting him. But Shane said, I can't see anybody. They only bark when someone is around. 
The Trials of the Vampire is a Podcast One production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.